You're listening to a Sunday sermon from Seven Mile Road Church in Melrose, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. To check out more about us, go to sevenmilemelrose.com. Good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Michael. I get to work on staff here. Recently, I've started getting into sneakers, um, Nike Jordans in particular, and Nike has this app called Sneakers, and they release new shoes pretty regularly throughout the week. Some of those shoes work on like a first-come, first-serve basis. Either there and you get them or you don't. Others work on like a lottery or a draw. You get in the right time, you put a bit in, most likely you don't get them. But they kind of give you like a menu, like in the next two weeks, here's the shoes that are coming. And so if you see one that you like two weeks ahead, you have two weeks to prepare to miss out on getting them, which is nice. Sometimes, though, they do this thing where they surprise drop shoes with no notice. And they're usually Jordans. And sometimes there's people who claim to know when these shock drops will happen. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're not. But if it's a pair that I think I would like, then I need to prepare in case they're right. So make sure the notifications are on, be prepared, alert. If it happens, I put in my bid to make sure I lose. And then if it doesn't, well, it's fine. The first time it happened, though, I really wasn't prepared, and I missed out on a very cool pair of shoes. Some of you do not care about the last 30 seconds of me talking about sneakers at all. But there is something in your life that causes you to have like really intense focus, trying to get something in the future that you wish that you could have or will make you happy or secure. Some of you were very prepared for Taylor Swift tickets. You were ready, you prepared your calendar when the time when Ticketmaster dropped those so you could get on, try to get them as fast as possible. Some of us are hyper alert for the time in the year when you know you need to put in your request for time off for the holidays. Like you know the exact hour or the right person or the right approach to make sure you can try to get Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's off this year. So we orient our calendars and our actions around things that we're hoping to get in the future. We prime our notifications or we make sure we're checking emails. In our passage today, Paul's going to address something that's much more important than Jordan's dropping or Taylor Swift tickets. It's more critical than our time off for holiday requests. The gospel tells us not only did Jesus die, but that he was raised from the dead, that 500 people saw him, that he went up to the throne of God in heaven, and one day he's going to return. And the timing of his return isn't given to us. It's a surprise. It's a shock drop. In light of this, then, how is it that we prepare for Jesus returning? How do we prepare ourselves in faith and hope? So here's something that I hope that you'll see with me in this passage today, is that Jesus' kingly return is a comfort for us, but it's also a call for us to live prepared. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into 1 Thessalonians 4. (laughs) Father, I ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive your word in faith. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right, let's start in verse 13. Uh, the text will be on the screen. If not, on your phone. We're in First Thessalonians 4, physical Bible. Paul starts, and he says, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. 
So Paul is addressing two questions that he's getting from this Thessalonian church plant. And the first one is, what about those who have died? So it's, it's reasonable for us to assume between the time Paul was there and when he got this letter, and the questions coming back from Timothy that some of them may have died in that time period. Maybe some of them had died in persecution. Or maybe it's just a general question that they have. But Paul tells them, the gospel gives us unique resources when it comes to the passing away of those who we love in Christ. That Paul's not telling them, don't grieve at all. He's saying grieve because what well, we weep, those that we love have been taken from us. Death has intruded harshly into our life. And the gospel gives us these unique resources because those who know Jesus grieve differently. We grieve differently because of the hope that we have, both in life and in death. And that hope is in Jesus. And so Paul goes on to describe that hope in the next verse. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So according to the scriptures, this is the hinge point of our faith and the hinge point of the scriptures. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. He was dead for three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, he's alive again. He was raised from the dead. It's a historical fact that changes everything and has dramatically changed the course of history, including for us how we process death and our future after death. So don't miss this. Paul's saying since Jesus was truly resurrected from the dead, those who follow Jesus will experience the same rescue from death through Jesus. God the Father didn't abandon Jesus to death after he died, and he won't abandon us if we belong to Jesus. Paul goes on and he says in verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul's not giving a brand new message from the Spirit here. He's giving them teaching that Jesus himself taught, the Lord's words. Presumably he's drawing off of Matthew 24, Luke 21, Jesus teaching on his return and the end of the age. Remember, the Thessalonians' question is about what happened, what happens with those who have died. And Jesus returns. Are they going to miss out? Are they going to have to wait and be resurrected after Jesus comes back? So Paul encourages them, those who are alive when Jesus comes back aren't going to cut the line. In fact, the reverse is going to happen. Verse 16 to 18. He said, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul says that Jesus is going to give this authoritative command. And the dead, who belong to Christ, will be raised first. And Jesus' command will be loud. It's not going to be silent. It's going to be like the command of a lead angel's voice. It's going to be the trumpet of God blowing loudly. This announcing Jesus' glorious arrival. And then, he says, next, in the sequence, after he commands and the dead in Christ are resurrected, that those who are still alive will then meet Jesus also. So the image is of a glorious visit of an emperor or a high-ranking official to a city. And when they would come, all the best, highest elite of the city would go out to meet them, to welcome them, and then 
everybody else would come and celebrate and praise them as they come into the city. This is the image Paul has here of Jesus returning. All of his people will go to him and meet him as he comes in to usher in his kingdom. So what's the deal with the clouds? Because we'll be caught up together in the clouds. Where does that come from? All right, so this, in particular, that's coming from this prophecy in Daniel 7. So if you want to go and read it later, you can. Daniel 7, where the Son of Man, so this is what Jesus refers to himself as pretty, pretty regularly. The Son of Man in this prophecy comes on the clouds of heaven to receive this eternal kingdom from God Almighty. And so when Jesus returns, he's coming on the clouds of heaven. He's coming to usher in his global, eternal kingdom. And when he returns, his resurrected dead, and then those who are alive, will join him. So this is Paul's point. This is his point in telling us how this is, why this is going to happen like this. He says we're always going to be with Jesus, both the living and the dead. This is our comfort. We will always be with Jesus together. So we can have a lot of questions about the return of Jesus, the exact details, the sequences of how it's going to work. But Paul's not getting caught up in that. Paul's point is not the process, but the promise of comfort that we have, that we and those who have already died in Christ, that we're always going to be with Jesus, and we're always going to be with Jesus together. Our comfort and our hope is in Jesus' kingly return. This is supposed to be a comfort to our souls, not just for us individually, but that we share together, that we give to one another as an exchange for comfort, for encouragement, because we need real comfort, because our lives are filled with sin and sickness and pain and death, and our world is full of war, and we feel it so often, our need for courage, our need for comfort. Jesus' return, his resurrection, our life in him, this is where Paul tells us to get comfort when we need it. So Paul is doing here for us what he's telling us to do, which is encourage one another with the gospel. Because Jesus' kingly return is to be a comfort for us. And then as we pivot to the next part of the passage, we're going to see it's also a call for us to live prepared. Let's jump into chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, now, he's jumping in on the second question they have. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Because you fully know the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. So here's the second question they have about the resurrection of Jesus, the return of Jesus, is the times and seasons, the when. When's he returning? It's, it's a logical, natural next question. If Jesus is coming back, when's that going to happen? Paul tells them that actually he's already taught them enough on this, that they fully know what he's told them. He's given them the teaching of Jesus on this. Paul seems to believe that the teaching of Jesus on this is sufficient for them to live by which means it's also sufficient for us to live by. But yet, like any good teacher would do, when asked the same question that they've already explained, he patiently goes through and answers again. And so, the day of the Lord. What is that? This is the moment where God's judgment comes to fruition for sin. You might refer to it referred to as judgment day. God's perfect justice will come Time and history reached their climactic end at Jesus' return. So in last week's sermon, uh, Matt 
giving us Paul's words, reminded us that God is an avenger of wrongdoing. This is the kind of thing that we prefer not to think about. Paul goes on and he explains, this is what's going to happen. In verse 3, he says, When people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Paul says this is how it's going to feel for those who don't know Jesus or don't believe in the gospel, that Jesus' kingly return will catch people off guard while their lives are seemingly stable, safe, secure. It's like somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night to rob you, like a thief in the night. You don't expect it. Some of you might know I grew up in Michigan, outside of Flint, which is not a peaceful or a safe place. My great-grandmothers both lived in Flint almost their whole lives. One night, a story my family likes to tell, my great-grandmother woke up because there was someone coming, someone in her, in her house, in her bedroom, with a gun, trying to rob her. No one expects a thief in the night, especially my grandmother, who was flustered. Someone asked, where's your purse? Kind of true to form, pretty fiery. She goes, I'm 96 years old. I don't know where my purse is. Thankfully, my granduncle came home and the thief ran away. Uh, but no one expects to find a thief in their home in the middle of the night. Paul says the day of the Lord will be like this. Unexpected destruction. But also unstoppable, unavoidable. That's his point with the metaphor of the labor pains. It's going to keep progressing the way labor pains keep going and don't turn back. So you might know we have three boys, and I've been able to see each of them get born and I don't know a lot about what's going on, but I do know one thing for sure, that when labor pains truly start, there's no going back. That the labor pains keep coming, and one after another, they get stronger, and they get stronger, and they get closer together, and it gets really hard to watch your wife when this is happening. So, like, I can't improve it as much as I might want to, because once it starts, there's no stopping the labor pains until the baby comes. Paul's saying the same kind of thing is going to be true when Jesus returns for judgment. There's going to be no escape once it starts. There's no way of getting out of it. And then he goes on in verse 4. He says, But you are not in the dark, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Paul says, For those who don't belong to Jesus, that day is going to be a surprise going to be a terrible shock. But if you belong to Jesus, it won't surprise you. Why not? Says when we follow Jesus by faith, we get a new primary identity. We're now members of the day, of the light, not of the dark and the night. If a thief comes in the house and surprises you, it's because it's dark and you can't see them coming. You're living in the dark. It's like you're in New Hampshire camping and your flashlight dies and your phone loses its charge in the middle of the night. It's very dark. But if you belong, that hasn't happened to me yet. If you belong to Jesus, Christ has woken us up to see what life is truly about. We used to live in the dark about these things, but now we know Jesus and his kingdom are what's most important. By faith, we live hoping for his return, which frees us to live by the light of the gospel. And so then Paul leans into how do we do that? How do we live in this identity? Verse 6 to 8, he says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. 
Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. When you're asleep, you're generally oblivious to what's going on around you. Paul says if you don't know Jesus, you're living your life as if you're asleep. The thing that will wake you up is the gospel of Jesus. The gospel wakes us up. It sobers us up to keep us living soberly, not like we're drunk. Somebody is drunk, they're generally oblivious to what's going on around them. Incapacitated, groggy, unfocused, unprepared. How would you live if you knew a thief was coming to your house tonight? If you don't know, there's two excellent Christmas movies about this with a little kid named Kevin. How do we live with an awareness of Jesus' return? One thing's for sure, you don't do it by living as if he's not coming back. Seems obvious, but I thought I would just say it anyways. Our response is to live soberly, alert, prepared, focused. How do we live like this? So in case he hasn't done enough metaphors, Paul switches metaphors and then talks about clothing. He says the way we live prepared is by putting on the right gospel clothing. The other day, my wife got one of my sons completely dressed. They were leaving in like four minutes. She sent him downstairs completely dressed and told him to put his shoes on. She was upstairs for less than three minutes getting her other son dressed, and when she came downstairs, it was clear he was not prepared to leave. He had taken all of the couch cushions in our living room and stacked them up into a tower and was sitting on top of it, completely naked. No shirt, no socks, no pants, no shoes. My wife says, it's time to go. Where are your clothes? I don't know. You've got to leave. Where are your shoes? I don't know. We still haven't found all of those clothes and shoes. It was time to leave. He was fully unprepared. Paul says we live our life prepared for Jesus' return by putting on the right gospel clothing. We need to protect our minds and our hearts from the things that make us unprepared and unfocused on a daily, monthly, weekly basis. Maybe consider what are those things in your life that are making you feel unprepared or unfocused. Paul says we live each day by gospel faith, by reminding ourselves what Jesus has done for us, who he has made us in the gospel. We also put on gospel love. We live out that gospel faith towards those around us. This prepares us, protects our hearts. He says we also put on over our head to protect our mind and our thinking the hope of salvation. So notice it's a specific kind of hope. It's not a general hope. It's the hope of salvation or deliverance, hope of rescue, which means that our hope isn't in getting a promotion in our job, success in our vocation. It's not in securing, if I'm going to meddle, I should meddle with my life. It's not in securing the latest part of pair of Jordans. It's not in the Pats, winning six games this year. Our hope's not in marrying the right person or getting that car, having a nice tax return. Our hope is in Jesus, and that one day he's going to return to rescue his people, finally, forever, fully, which is why we need to daily put on gospel clothing. Paul goes on to remind us why. Verse 9 to 10, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. 
It says, if we belong to Jesus, we are destined one day to obtain rescue from what we do deserve. Punishment for our sin. The ways we're disregarded, disobeyed God Almighty. And we make this future rescue our possession by faith in Jesus. We grab it. We keep hold of it by trusting in Jesus in the gospel. And how is it that Jesus rescues us? How is it that he says in this verse, we're going to be rescued? We're rescued by Jesus because he died for us so that we could live with him. He who lived blamelessly before God gave up his life in love so that we might live with him after his death and resurrection. Messed up, broken people like us. He was our substitute. His A plus for our F. His blamelessness for all of our failures. So please don't miss this. It's not a matter of if God's wrath happens for our sins. It's a matter of where God's wrath happens for our sins. So it's not a matter of if it's going to happen, but where it's going to happen. And the glorious grace of the gospel hope that we have is that the wrath of God has been put on Jesus in our place for our sins. That our hope is that we will be rescued by Jesus. That we have justification, righteousness with God now, and that when he returns, we will be saved by Jesus. So why is it that Jesus died for us? He did it so that we can live with him as one people, those who have already died in Christ and those who are alive when he returns, joined together as one people under God in Christ forever. Paul says that the purpose of this teaching on Jesus coming back is to encourage us. He says, encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. The way that we respond to Jesus' kingly return is to believe it, to live our life awake, sober-minded, to give one another courage as we encounter the hard things of life, the disappointments, the frustrations, the failures. Our future hope in Jesus wakes us up out of our boredom of life, gives us the courage to keep working hard, to pray for the faith of our neighbors, to grieve for our loved ones in a hopeful way, to value his church deeply, to walk in the light together, confessing our sin and faith in Jesus regularly. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. If you're here and you don't yet believe Jesus, now is the time to consider maybe why does life feel disjointed or incomplete, unsatisfying? What resources do you have that allow you to have hope after death? Where are you finding hope? The good news of the gospel is that our only hope is found in Jesus, both in life and in death, and that we can belong to him by faith doesn't matter how much you've messed up. What matters is how well Jesus has functioned in our place for us. And if you're here and you do believe the gospel, would you remember that Jesus' kingly return is a comfort for us? And it's also a call for us to live prepared. Are we living prepared? Are you finding comfort and hope in Jesus and his return? So let's be a people who grieve with hope. Let's be a people who live awake and sober-minded as we wait for Jesus' return. Because Jesus' return is our comfort and also is a call for us to live each day prepared, wearing gospel clothing, waiting for our King's return. Let's pray together.